0: Welcome to the second series of Haptic and Hughes Tales of Textiles. I'm Jo Andrews, a hand weaver interested in how all kinds of cloth speaks to us and the impact it has on our lives. Each of the episodes in this series takes an emotion and unravels how we express it in textiles. This episode is called A Feeling of Sorrow and it's about how we deal with the deep and difficult emotions that grief brings. It looks at the unrecognised and often unarticulated comfort that textiles give us in this process. It also deals with remembering people who have lost their lives in political violence, how we commemorate appalling events like the Holocaust, and how we might use textiles to memorialise those lost in the pandemic. This is not for everyone, and please don't listen if this distresses you, but sorrowing is a profound human emotion, one we all experience in our lives, and textiles have an important role in helping us to do this.
1: My father died in 2016 just before his 96th birthday, so, you know, he'd had a long life. It, it was sad, but not not unexpected. I'd taken his shirts because I just thought, I, well, I'm the sort of keeper of everything, really. I, I In the family, I, I don't like throwing... I'm not that cluttered, but I don't like throwing things away, so I took... I t- I've kept the shirts. That's Judith
0: Staley talking about her dad, Vern. His shirts were pretty special. We
1: bought my dad's shirts latterly in the last 15, 20 years of his life, I suppose. And one sister in particular always chose him a lovely shirt for Christmas. So it became part of him. And I think it was, it, he liked them because they were gifts from his daughters. He was a, a real family man. He was a very gentle man. And they became very part, part of him.
0: Judith is the founder of a remarkable movement called So Over 50, which is a gathering place for people of all backgrounds who sew and make their own clothing. I have no doubt that were it to become a political party, it would take over the world. It has just celebrated reaching 30,000 followers. But even though Judith has all the sewing skills, it took her time to decide what she could make from the shirts for her three sisters.
1: And I wanted to do it as a surprise, but then I I wanted to make sure it was something they would want. And I thought it would be nice to make something that they could wear rather than a cushion. But again, I didn't think making a top seemed appropriate. Somebody on Instagram had made an apron from a shirt or from a few shirts. And that just gave me the idea that I could do that for my sisters um, because it's something that they won't wear every day or out in public or whatever, they can wear at home and it's sort of like wearing a part of a part of my dad I suppose
0: making the aprons brought back lots of memories of her father and helped judith process her own feelings
1: so as i was making my sisters uh, the aprons i was thinking of my father as i sewed them and you know pictures of him in the shirts and and being with him where you know wearing his shirts walking into the house and seeing him there. And her sisters
0: enjoyed the surprise.
1: My sisters all live fairly close together down in, in England and they were they did get together for Christmas Day. So I'd sent a, a joint parcel with them in. I wanted them to open them together. Luckily, they were able to. There's a lot of humour in our family, a lot of joking. And, and so I think it was a mixture of... Being able to laugh at themselves in in um, but com- uh, comfort as well, you know, tears tears of both laughter and and sadness. They put them on straight away. Sent took the photograph to send me and and uh, I think cooked Christmas dinner wearing them, you know. But I knew that how they how receptive they would be to it. I knew they would be fine. They would they would like it. And the apron will you know, hang there in the chin and they'll catch glimpses of it. and They'll wear it sometimes, but they, um, it's just the catching glimpses of my dad, I suppose.
0: In the past, many of us would have marked the death of a family member in very different ways. The Victorians in particular made this a highly formal and complex display with specialist fabrics and clothing worn for long periods of time. Dresses of Parramatta silk or the cheaper black bombazine. Veils and black armbands would be commissioned. The British textile manufacturer Courtholds made a sizeable fortune just producing black mourning crepe, so widespread was the demand. Entire stores sprung up to provide appropriate dress to all family members as quickly as possible after a death. One of the most popular was Jay's mourning Warehouse in London. But today, for many of us, our sorrowing is much more individual and private. There's very little expected of us in the way of dress or behaviour after a death. Which leaves us with the question of how do we process sorrow? Judy thinks that working with textiles has a special power to do this, and that it has a strong connection with memory and feelings.
1: The touch of the fabric, the fact that a loved one has worn that close to their body and somehow feel them through, through that. Unfortunately, my mum died f- uh, 2012, before I'd begun sewing again, and I didn't keep any of her she had a thing about cardigans I didn't, and I would have loved to have made something from those but I do have an, a silk jacket of hers that she, she must have brought in just after the war I think in Bond Street and and I wear that occasionally and I really love to wear that because because that's one thing I've got of hers clothes wise and she loved her clothes and that's one thing I've got and I, I love to wear it because she wore it and it's just lovely to have that. And I suppose it is like having a hug, a bit of, that, a bit of them on, on your body.
0: There is a sense that touch and handling fabric engages our brain in a way that gives the conscious parts of it something to do and allows deeper emotions to surface. It seems to access a different system to words or speech, a system that connects more directly to our feelings in a less formalised, calmer way. There's been a lot of research done, not least by the UK's National Health Service, on how knitting helps to deal with chronic pain. And what is sorrow if it's not a different kind of pain? But this is not the only role textiles play in sorrowing. In 1973, Chile's democratic government was overthrown in a violent coup. A military dictatorship was established by Augusto Pinochet, and thousands of people suspected of left wing leanings were snatched off the street and disappeared. The repression was intense. Anyone who tried to say what was happening put themselves in great danger. It was complete silence until people took up their needles.
2: It came about as a way of mostly women in under these regimes of expressing uh, the, the great tragedy that was unfolding in their country at the time, especially in Chile. The normal journalistic avenues were sequestered. They weren't allowed to talk about it. You could be arrested for even having given support to a dissident or a protester. It was a way that they could call out to the world at large their grief and sorrow and the, the, the difficulty of living under these conditions.
0: The textiles were called apiera, which in Spanish means simply burlap or hessian because that's what these pictures were stitched on, a form of sacking. And as sewn materials, stitched often in Catholic churches, they pass below the radar of the state. Deborah Stockdale is a specialist in Apiera. She works at Conflict Textiles, which is an international collection in Northern Ireland that focuses on elements of conflict and human rights abuses expressed in textiles. Deborah says that the
2: apiara were made to send a message and to express sorrow. I think both of that is true. A lot of cases they were making them for themselves. It was a way to deal with grief and to deal with the disappearance, to hold the, the fabrics of the shirts and the trousers and the school uniforms, and to honour the person that would have worn these things and handled these things on a daily basis. The difficulty with the Arpilleras is that a lot of them are very, very personal to the person, and it was a way of speaking out that they would have never been afforded as citizens. It was a way that they could communicate with the larger world that these things were happening. and and. The way they were smuggled out to countries in Europe and other parts of the world, it was like underground railway of information. Because they were so seemingly domestic and craft-like, they didn't come to the authorities' attention. The authorities didn't realise the significance of what the stories were telling to the rest of the world.
0: The Appiera were exhibited in Germany and Britain and were some of the first evidence of the repression that was spreading across Latin America and the terrible impact it was having on families. Deborah says she was immediately drawn to them.
2: For me, it was a combination of my love of storytelling and history and textiles, which run side by side. Uh, The fact that they were small, miniature, very complex creations, their domesticity and often prettiness or cuteness of the colorful fabrics and the small doll, doll-like creatures uh, belie their very complex background in history and the story that they tell. The stories sometimes were extremely difficult. They talked about torture and disappearance, of imprisonment of families in distress loss, and uh, the combination of all these things in one small 25-inch piece of fabric attracted me immensely.
0: Deborah has been
2: a quilt maker
0: for 50 years and has worked with a number of community groups making historical or story-based textiles. She's no stranger to Sorrow herself and has made textile pieces to commemorate
2: the deaths of her brother and sister I think textiles have a language of their own one of the things that I always say is they have prana prana is the connection between the animate world and the inanimate world and I think the objects that we use and that we wear and are imbibed with our own energy like and old clothes old hats anything that's in daily use is carries this energy onward, and it can exist without the person. And I I find that when I am making a memorial piece, like for my brother and my sister, and making these arpieras that connect me with specific people, they have the energy from that person. And by making artwork with it, I'm carrying that energy forward and displaying it for other people to see. I think the feeling of a soft old blanket or like a scratchy tweed coat evokes memories in us that uh, are almost subliminal and very important. It cuts through a lot of the verbal connection that we would have with people. And I feel that by using these things, it gives them a, a further connection and importance in our lives.
0: And that sense of standing outside language means that many people have a
2: specific reaction to the apiara. It depends on the person, but one of the first responses when people see apiaras is that they want to touch them, which to me is an automatic connection, especially concerning textiles, the desire to touch, to feel, to use the other senses just beside the visual to connect. We all desire to touch and to feel, but it's a sense that it's been less familiar to us in modern, the modern world. We're all ever so slightly disconnected. And, um, I think our Piero's evoke this response in people. I know that, you know, as a textile artist, you aren't really supposed to touch things <laughs> that are on exhibit, as we all know. Um, uh, but. They do evoke that in people. They want, to, they want to feel it as well. Especially the three-dimensional part with the small dolls and the embellishments that people put on them.
0: The power of the stories Apiera can tell has meant that they have been adopted almost universally. Many artists and individuals have used them to convey their own feelings. In Deborah's eyes, they can connect us with much bigger events, events which otherwise we find difficult
2: to approach or understand. One of the Arpieras in the collection is by um, a woman called Anna Slákus. She's an Argentinian. And it portrays a man and a woman leading children out of war-torn buildings, you know, buildings that are been reduced to rubble. Her piece honors the men and women, the many men and the many women that led Jewish children to safety throughout Europe. So it's it's a humble-looking piece. It's just a man and a woman and a child in each hand. But it represents so much. It represents thousands and thousands of people, thousands of children that were saved. A very small, simple artwork like that can connect you with a a much greater picture.
0: Connecting with a much bigger picture is exactly what Karen Garfin does. Her work is powerful and moving, often all the more so for being very simple, stitched words on everyday objects. But there is nothing simple about the subjects she tackles. For many years, Karen created stitched artwork about eating disorders and body dysmorphia. Listen to her describe what happened when she exhibited some of these pieces at the big knitting and stitching shows
3: in the UK and Ireland. And people came in, and the emotion and the sorrow and the fear and the relief from people was just unbelievable. Um, First day first morning, nobody really around and I came into the space to just make make sure everything was fine and there was a young woman reading something on a drip. I'd made a, a drip bag which was hanging from a drip stand. It was all hand-stitched and she was reading the words on that and she was crying, really, really crying And um, and I just hugged her and she said, she just said, this is me. And honestly, it was like after the first exhibition, which was four days at Alexandra Palace, um, I was just so drained because it was like people were crying. Uh, so many people were crying and, and or, or they were talking, uh, which was great. They were talking.
0: She says she never forces her work. It just comes to her. And what came to her next was a feeling that she had to tackle both the Holocaust and also the rise in modern anti-Semitism.
3: I said to people, my close family, uh, sisters, I said, this is what I'm going to do. And even my daughter, the same, I told told her that I'm doing this work. And they said, don't do it. Don't do it. Because I think they were scared because for... For many years, um, a lot of Jewish people don't say they're Jewish. I think it's just just something, it's sort of like a self-protection. I said, I'm sorry, but whatever happens, I'm going to do this. There's something in me which says this is the time to make the work. Part of the power of the work she makes lies in her ability to
0: give back individual identities to victims of the Holocaust. In one piece, she selects people who wore glasses to create a cross-section of people across Europe. There's a photo of each person, and then under a small spectacle lens, a magnified description of what happened to them. Gita Heymansen, Riga, Latvia, housewife, married, three children, murdered, 1943, Kaiserwald concentration camp, Riga. Hans Kronowitz, 19, Eindhoven, Holland, chemist, in hiding, disappeared,
3: not heard from again. I think you live with the burden of the story. But as I did with the eating disorders, I had to sort of set up some sort of mental barrier. It's not my place to weep and wail. I don't think it's my place to do that. I think those people have suffered so much and it's it's my job to tell the story and whether it's painful to me, which it is, um, I do it. I, I feel compelled to make the work and each story is unique. There might have been six million and six million it doesn't really suggest anything to me. It's just a number. But when you go into that, and, and it's one person, um, I think that's, you realise they've had a life, they were happy children, and they lived with their parents in their home, and they, they went to school, or they worked, or, you know, they went to visit their auntie, and and, and they've lost everything, they've lost their, their whole whole life, really. Karin's work
0: has contemporary meaning too, because mixed in amongst the photos of those who perished in the Holocaust are pictures of those who've been victims of modern attacks. And in this way, Karin draws a direct line between the Nazi era and anti-Semitism today.
3: I think the textiles are very important in the Jewish religion and other religions and other cultures Material is very important. It's just part of a culture and in the Jewish culture you're looking at things like a head covering or a prayer shawl or you're even looking at a challah. A, chala. a chala is a, a sweet bread, plaited bread which is eaten on a Friday night um, with a Friday night meal and that's covered with a cloth. Everything is sort of relates back to textiles right from the very beginning from a uh, circumcision all the way up to death and that actually people are treated even in death with respect and dignity with they're wrapped in a very simple burial cloth which is plain white plain white and made of linen or muslin and wrapped with care the women will wrap the female body and treat it with utmost respect. So you're going through a whole lifetime of textiles in the Jewish religion, but I, I know the burial um, um, cloth is, I think, is used with uh, uh, Muslims as well, do a very similar thing. So it's sort of, it's part of us, it's part of being a human being um, and people are drawn in to, to the cloth
0: Karen also has a way of approaching the Holocaust that can help us see the outlines of the tragedy in different ways. One of her pieces, just finished, came as a submission to the British textile Biennale. The brief was to reflect on the impact of textiles on people and place through personal histories and geographies. She decided to look at the Berlin fashion industry in the 1930s and all the companies that supplied it. At first, she focused on those who escaped and built successful lives elsewhere. Bernard Klein, Jacqueline Grogue, and Marian Marler. But then she changed her mind.
3: I want to look at those people that aren't remembered or may have been remembered but then forgotten who who had incredible businesses incredible talent fashion designers and um, retail people uh, people you know businesses that made corsets and um, buttons and all the things that connect to the fashion industry they were really important to the economy of germany and they were very talented people and i think they Just under half of um, the population of Berlin who were in in the fashion industry uh, were Jewish. But they were working side by side with other people. They were all connected. She wanted to create
0: a piece that could illustrate the impact of Nazi policies on this thriving and innovative industry. Fragments is the result. At first sight, it's pages from an old-fashioned
3: atlas with little fabric swatches stuck in. I mean, it was a very gradual thing because I didn't actually have this set vision. Um, It just happened. It evolved into this piece. And I suddenly thought, I'm going to make these labels because they're the labels you would find in your own clothing so you can relate to that. I decided to use the labels and write down the names, stitch, hand stitch, the names of those people who lost their businesses or they escaped to the Netherlands or to France. And they were picked up. They were picked up after the Nazis invaded those countries and they were arrested and sent to concentration camps and murdered. It appears some really clever peoples and really talented textile designers and they're gone they're lost forever
0: here are a couple of entries julius and simon block high-end women's fashion business supplying harrods harvey nichols and exporting dresses and suits to scandinavia and switzerland confiscated without restitution egon zons a fashion designer Egon emigrated to Holland, he was arrested in Amsterdam and deported to Auschwitz, where he was murdered. Karen stitches layers of meaning into her pieces. She didn't want to use any old material to make the labels of these lost businesses, so she appealed for spare yamulkers, or skull caps, to be donated.
3: So I used them because I felt that they really would fit fit everything that they, they have come from Jewish people who are alive and well, and they're a celebration, they're a celebration of good things. So I unpicked them and cut them with pinking shears into these shapes and stuck them in and next to them went the label. Um, But also um, I made a label, it was so difficult, I, I did it. I dyed some material black and stitched in white onto it for for a logo of something called ADEFA, um, which is an acronym for I can't actually describe it because it's it's a very long, long and it's in German. But they <laughs> they they were set up in 1933 and their main aim was to remove Jewish people from all areas of the fashion industry in Berlin and further and beyond um, in the whole of Germany. And they actually did achieve their role. By 1938, um, there was barely barely a fragment, and this is the word, a fragment, uh, which is the name of the artwork, uh, left. I mean, people were either murdered or destitute or uh, left the country. And on top of that, this page is open to Central Europe So you see all these countries where there was a Nazi invasion and where there was huge, huge amounts of anti-Semitism in other countries in in Central Europe. So that was very important. And there's one area where there's a gap. There's a gap and you can see, you can see Budapest and uh, Vienna, uh, where people, where Jewish people had to escape from. And also in that area, you can see um, Auschwitz is on there. Um, it's in the on in the Polish, the Polish word, which I can't quite pronounce, so I'll just say Auschwitz. Um, so you can see that if you look closer, you can see the extra meaning to this piece. And the gap is also saying these are the people that are forgotten. They're, they're not here. We can't even we don't even know their name, but they're gone. Her
0: work is deeply moving, and the reaction to it, unsurprisingly, has been supportive,
3: incredibly positive from all people. Um, I put the work up on Instagram, and when I first did it, because of all these, all these doom doom mongers saying don't do it, you know, I was scared. I was actually scared to put it up, but um, the the actual response has been very positive and. And people are saying, yes, this is amazing what you're doing. Just carry on. It's very important. When I make an artwork, I'm not pointing a finger. I'm saying, this is what happened. I mean, I'm doing it in my own way. I'm not accusatory. I'm, I want to just do it in a very respectful way um, with real care and sensitivity, because that's the only way to go when you're dealing with something as painful
0: as this. Which brings me right back to current events. We've been living through events over the past 18 months which have disrupted our lives completely and have meant the loss of millions of people. The pandemic is not over yet but I've been wondering if people will find textiles a powerful and useful way to process the sorrow of this. Karen says she raises her hat to the bravery of anyone who is prepared to make work about COVID at present. She doesn't feel ready. Deborah Stockdale, though,
2: thinks it will come in time. I think the pandemic has been a game changer for so many people on the planet. The reevaluation of our lifestyles, the use of goods and services the way people have connected or lost connected, lost connection with people, uh, the way that people have suffered and died and been uh, put in conditions of ill health for the rest of their lives. These are all topics that artists will address in all kinds of art forms. I think uh, one of the main things about pandemic that's resonated with me is the the contradiction between isolation and connection. And the fact that never have most people been so isolated, but in a certain way, never have they been so connected. The fact that most people are working from home now, don't have their usual lifestyle choices of socializing and athletics and travel and all of those things has focused them inward and um that's a good thing in a lot of ways and it's also been a breathing space for the wildlife and nature that was very timely i think we appreciate those things more than ever and they also have highlighted how fragile um, the planet is right now so those are big subjects and i think it's something that most artists are are coming to grips with, either writers, artists, textile artists, philosophers. All of these people are are looking at pandemic and trying to figure out what it actually means, the changes that the pandemic has brought, what that actually means to them personally and as citizens of the universe.
0: Thanks to Deborah Stockdale of Conflict Textiles in Northern Ireland, Judith Staley of So Over 50, and to Karen Garfin for their insight, their courage, and for their work. You can see images of what they've been talking about and find links to their work at www.hapticandhue.com forward slash listen where you will also find a full script of this podcast and a form which gives you a chance to join the haptic and Hugh community. It was hard to find a poem, mere words, to express some of the enormously powerful feelings this episode has explored. But after much searching, I think Mary Oliver, an American poet, comes close in this poem published in 1983, called In Blackwater Woods. Look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light, are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfilment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds and every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I have learnt in my lifetime leads back to this, the fires and the black river of loss whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world You must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal. To hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go.